Good morning. I miss you guys. Look forward to talking to you if I haven't already recently. Or uh, more than that, look forward to the day that we can be together. So lamentable days, uh, discouraging days in many ways, but uh, hopeful days, hopefully. Hopeful in the sense that they're teaching us something. That's what I hope that the Lord is doing. Uh, I know that I've asked that question, asked myself that question a lot this week. Lord, what are you teaching us? Like, What's this all about? What are you trying to say to us? Uh, and in particular, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? And the word that keeps coming back to me time and again is that same word I've been using a lot. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, that word sobering, awakening, sobering. Um, but this week I've been asking myself the question, um, all right, Lord, what? What are you sobering us from and what are you sobering us to exactly? Trying to understand. I don't want to miss what the Lord is teaching. I don't want us to miss what the Lord might be teaching us in this time. And so I've asked that question. What's the Lord sobering us from? What's he sobering us to? And, uh, you know, an alcoholic is sobered from being controlled by alcohol to being controlled by sobriety, something better, right? Clarity of mind. And so what's the Lord sobering us from and what is he sobering us to? And the thing that the Lord has been teaching me this week, not to, this is a definitive answer for all the world, but I believe uh, there is a sense in which this is true for us. Uh, I believe that God is teaching us that he's sobering us from our self-sufficiency, from our pride, and to the reality of our weakness before him. He's sobering us from our pride, our self-sufficiency, our perceived strength, to our reality of our weakness. Um, that seems to be what the Lord is doing. The Lord is crushing our confidence in our own industry. He's crushing our confidence to live 80 years in a stable economy, to have vacations and material possessions uh, as we would like. He's crushing us from all of that. We're now left to wonder, when's this going to stop? And secondly, what's it going to be like when it's all over? Just a few weeks ago, though, maybe a, maybe a month or so ago, we were exalting in the strength of our unprecedented economy. We, were, we all had plans. I know I did, had plans to go do this or do that. And all of that has been crushed by a tiny, unseen virus. And what the Lord has done is he's shut down those plans and he's in effect, he's sent us to our rooms to maybe consider the fact that we're not nearly as strong as we thought we were. We're not nearly as in control of our own destinies as we thought we were. Maybe death is more imminent than we thought. Maybe we might not live to be 80 years old. Maybe we might not go here and do this or do that. We might not come to expect to have those luxuries that we've expected to have. And again, all this stuff is coming at us. These realities are coming at us. These things are being aware, uh, more aware to us not by some mighty army that has descended upon us and imposed its will on us. But again, it's come by a tiny, unseen virus that is literally shutting the world down, exposing our weakness, exposing the fact that our uh, mighty machinations that we trust in, the strength of man, exposing the fact that they're actually quite weak. And so if I'm right, if it's true that the Lord is using these moments to sober us from our perceived strength and to the reality of our weakness, then friends, I can think of no better topic to talk about than prayer. And prayer. 
If you were to look at a church's annual calendar, you were to look at it and you were to ask the question, which of these events over the course of the year, which of these events might we expect to be the most least attended? We would all quickly agree, I think, that the thing that we would expect to be the least attended in a church's calendar year is the church's prayer meeting. If we were to have a kind of marriage and family training session, it would probably be well attended. If we had a night to understand the problem of evil, our biblical manhood and womanhood, understandably, those things would probably be well attended. If we had a service project to serve a need in the community, those would be moderately attended. But have a prayer meeting, it would likely be poorly attended. That's been my experience in every church I've been a part of. And I wonder why. Why is it prayer meetings are so poorly attended? Why is it all of us have so much trouble praying? Well, I think in part, right, it's, I can answer this for myself. Prayer is hard, isn't it? Prayer, doesn't, nothing seems to be happening when we pray, right? Isn't that why it's better to go do a service project or do a training? Because, you know, it doesn't seem like anything's really happening when we pray. So I think one of the reasons why prayer meetings are not well attended One of the reasons why we have trouble praying is because prayer exposes our weakness. It demands us recognize our vulnerabilities. It demands us to go to God. It it exposes our dependency, something we don't like to think about. And so could it be that our uh, fragile prayer lives indicates our fragile confidence in God? And likewise, it indicates our confidence in ourselves. D.A. Carson writes in his book on prayer, quote, isn't it true that by and large we are better at organizing than agonizing? Better at, administrator, at administering than interceding. Better at fellowshipping than fasting. Better at entertainment than worship. Better at theological articulation than spiritual adoration. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for these days, among other things, is that we as a church, would learn to be weak. We would embrace our weakness so that we would then go to God for strength and prayer. And so I count it God's good providence that we come to this passage this week, Luke 11, 1 to 13. We're just continuing on what we've been doing in Luke. And here, we, the next passage, I think it's providential that the question that we're answering this morning is, Lord, would you teach us to pray? So we're going to do that. Now you'll notice I haven't prayed yet. So let's do that now. God, just for a few minutes, we've we prayed with Joey. And we just had a moment to be a little sobered up to the reality that we are, we, 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 we feel strong in ourselves. And we're being exposed, we're being sobered to the need to pray, to embrace our weakness and pray so that we would find strength in Christ. Teach us to be people that do that. Use this time in your word to have us embrace weakness that we would find strength in Christ in prayer. Teach us to be a people that prays. We ask it in his name. Amen. Passage this morning, Luke 11. 1 to 13, here's what it says. 
Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, he's praying. We've seen that a lot, haven't we, in Luke. Jesus is praying all the time. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give his friend anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, the word there is persistence, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a, a scorpion? If you then know, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Two points this morning, two questions that we'll answer. How do we pray? And then the second one, why should we pray? Why do or why? Yeah, why should we pray? So first off, how do we pray? First off, I want you to notice, guys, when you look at the text there, hopefully your Bibles are open. You're looking at them. If not, go online somewhere up here and grab Bible Gateway. Look at it there. I want you to notice, don't lose sight of the fact that the that prayer is corporate, right? It's corporate in its nature in this passage. The corporate nature of prayer is assumed. You see it in all the us's and the we's there. Lord, teach us to pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive. Indebted to us and lead us in, not into temptation. Note that corporate nature of sin. When we're learning how to pray, we should understand in part that prayer is corporate. Right? When we think of prayer, we often think of individual prayer. And as well, we should. We need to be doing that. But prayer is also corporate. The Bible is constantly calling us to not just pray individually, but pray together, which is one of the one of the reasons why this is so frustrating, right? That we can't come together and pray together. Uh, yeah, having said that, I've been so encouraged by our time uh, each morning through the Psalms as we pray together. That's been an encouragement to me. I know that some of you have said it's been an encouragement to you. But part of learning how to pray, guys, is by learning and listening to others pray. Right? When you think about how you learned your language, a number of you in our church know two or three languages. How did you learn those languages? Well, I know I learned how to speak English, not in a class. I learned it by listening to my mom and dad talk. So I learned how to pray. So in the same way, we learn how to pray by listening to others pray in part. And so that's the beauty of learning to pray in community, listening to others pray. And that's assumed in this passage. But take a look at how Jesus teaches us to pray by evaluating what he says to say. Six things in this prayer that teach us how to pray. Six things. And the first and the second are the most important 
and then we get the other four. First one there, what should we pray or how should we pray? We see the first thing is, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, hallowed be your name. Now, I'll get to the notion of praying to Father when we get to the back end of the passage. But for now, notice that the first thing Jesus teaches his disciples, teaches us in the school of prayer, is to begin with a petition, to begin with a request for God to hallow his name. For him to hallow his name. Hallow there means to, uh, is a form of the word holy, to set apart. That's what holy means, set apart. And so Jesus is teaching us that the first thing that we should pray is to ask God to set his name, set his character, set his glory apart from everything else. Lift it up, God. Spread your name. Make it clear to everyone that you are great. Holy or holy eyes, your name, your fame in all of the earth. God, you are most ultimate. God, may it be seen. May it be revered. May you be praised in all the earth. May you be set up high and above everything else. That's the first thing. Jesus is teaching us to pray. And of course, we see that, right? When we thought about this last week in the first and greatest commandment, love God with everything. Right? It's the heart of our existence. It's one of the reasons we have so much trouble when we're not loving God. We were made to praise God, to hallow His name. So we think about the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments. Think about those, right? Have no other gods before me. Make no idols and bow down to them. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, right? All three of those are variations of this request to praise God and have other praise, other people praise God. We, we can think about all the people and things that are trying to set their names apart from Christ, so the glory of God. They're trying to lift their names up high and above. And while it may be true that God has no rivals to his power, to his might, to his glory, he does have plenty of challengers. People that want to distract people from the sight of the holiness of God. And so when we pray, we begin with what's most important, the ultimate reason for our existence, the magnification of the glory of Christ in all the earth. It's the first thing that we pray for. And so guys, this is not a bumper sticker. This is not just a phrase we say. I think about all those times when I was on sports teams, when we would pray the Lord's Prayer. We just repeat a phrase. That's all it really was. This has got to be the heart. If we are Christians, this has got to be the thing that we want more than anything else. For God's name to be hallowed. But how does that happen best? I think that leads to the second thing that we learn to pray. Your kingdom come. What's the best way we can see God's name be hallowed? Well, by the fullness of God's kingdom breaking in on earth. God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. And so when the kingdom breaks in, so this prayer, God, may your kingdom come. When the kingdom comes in, as it comes in, two things happen. Evil is sent away, and the goodness of God breaks in. His perfection. Goodness is amplified, evil is sent away. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, evil is sent away, goodness is amplified forever. That's what the kingdom coming in does. So think about this. When we go back to that passage from a few weeks ago where Jesus sent out the disciples. Y'all remember that? He sent them out two by two and all that. And remember, they were going out. They were preaching the word. They were casting out demons. They were healing the sick. And remember, Jesus told them to say something. You remember? He said, uh, the kingdom has come near. See, that exposes, doesn't it? That when evil is pushed away and the goodness of God breaks in, that's what the kingdom is. So when we pray, your kingdom come. That's what we're praying. That evil would be sent away and the greatness of the glory of God would break into the earth. 
One of my favorite books that uh, I have read numerous times, I love to read it, is a book called Creation Regained by Hal Walters. And that's what happens when the kingdom comes. God's very good creation is regained. It's currently infected as we are experiencing with sin and suffering and evil. But in Christ, God is reconciling the world to Himself through His people by His Spirit. And so when soon enough, Jesus will return and He will put the capstone to what He's doing right now. And so we live in between the already and not yet. Christ has already won at the cross. That's why He said, it is finished the word. You said it, I heard it. It is finished, right? It's done. He finished it. He paid the price with His blood for sin. And he resurrected, illustrating the fact that it was indeed finished. But it's not yet complete. We're in between the already and the not yet. Already he has finished. But it's not yet complete. And we live in between those two things. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for God's name to be hallowed as his kingdom breaks in and completes the victory lap. Al Walter says in that book, Creation Regained, what was formed in creation, Genesis 1, has been historically deformed by sin, Genesis 3, and must be reformed in Christ. That's what God's doing through His church. And so we pray, God, hallow Your name. Hallow uh, it by having Your kingdom break in on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a good time in the prayers, we're working through how to pray as you're praying that, this is a good time to petition the Lord to maintain or plant or revitalize healthy churches. Since the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Since the church is the manifold wisdom of God. Since the church is an outpost of the kingdom. right? So pray here. God, break your kingdom in. Bring healthy churches, healthy pastors, healthy deacons. Make the members of those churches uh, eager to, for discipleship, evangelism, and prayer. And in that doing, in that you actually are praying the kingdom of God would come. You can also pray right here, this kingdom coming for the eradication of this virus. Because in the new heavens and new earth, as the kingdom comes in, there's no viruses that we have to sequester ourselves from. Pray here for criminal and educational and medical and economic reform. Uh, pray here for uh, the, uh, that justice would come to the unjust peoples, people who are being acting unjustly. Uh, this might be also, we're going to get to the personal request in just a second, but this might be a time when you're talking about praying about the kingdom breaking in. This might be a good time right here for God's kingdom to break into your own heart where you're struggling with besetting sins. You might not believe in Jesus. This would be a good time. God, break your kingdom in that I might believe. This might be a time where you break in and say, God, break your kingdom into my heart to cure me, to overcome my pride, to overcome my pinch it towards sexual immorality, towards anger, towards greed. God, break your kingdom in. God, may your, uh, may your glory come into my heart and break these besetting sins, these strongholds. And in so doing, you might pray, God, hallowed then your name in my life as it relates to these things. And so then the prayer moves here in the school of prayer from the hallowing of God's name to the kingdom to now the welfare of those that are residents of that kingdom. That's what he does with the next four things as we learn how to pray. The third thing is give us each day our daily bread. So here Jesus is teaching us to look for daily provision, not weekly abundance. Now what do I mean by that? 
what I mean by that. Well, when we slow down and think about our fears, oftentimes we find that our fears are a result of our insecurities, aren't they? We don't think we have enough of something. Until we get an abundance of something, we fear. That might be, you know, we, we fear as it relates to financial security, especially from some of you right now. I, until I get, say, three months of savings, I'm going to be fearful. Or uh, I'm fearful of the fact that I uh, don't have enough of something else. I don't feel like my job is that secure. I don't feel like I have enough of something else, whatever it might be. And yet, what we do in those moments as a result is we then begin to fear, sinfully fear. But whatever it is, we aren't fearful. We are fearful because we don't feel like we have enough of something. It doesn't mean that we don't have something. It's just we don't think we have enough of something. It could be food or shelter. And so we fear we don't have something, uh, enough of something. And so what we want then is weekly abundance, not trust for daily provision. And here, Jesus teaches us in the school of prayer to ask, note the words, each day for our daily provision, daily bread. In other words, Jesus is saying is what we need to learn is to daily depend upon grace for each day. When we begin to fear about what may or may not happen tomorrow, we are asking for tomorrow's bread today. And Jesus says, no. Ask the Lord each day for daily bread, daily provision. In other words, you pray, God, help me today to live in what I know today, what I need today. I think it was Luther that says that Satan would have you to live in yesterday and tomorrow. God would have you to live in today. Jesus even teaches us this relation to fear and tomorrow. He says, Matthew 6, 34, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Amen. Therefore, ask the Lord each day for daily bread. We can think back to the Exodus, right? When this is exactly what happened. Israelites wandering through the wilderness. And what did the Lord give them? In the manna. Daily bread. And the Lord even told them that they were not allowed to take up more than they needed for that day. And it's interesting, even on the Friday before the Saturday, he gave them an extra abundance so they wouldn't have to collect it on a, Sunday, on a Saturday, which was the Sabbath. You'll be amazed, uh, guys, how, how much of your fears will wither when you learn to trust the Lord each day for daily provision and not demand from him weekly abundance. You and I were not promised weekly abundance. The Lord does, though, promise to feed us when we go to him for daily bread in daily prayer. And so embrace weakness, beloved, by being made strong in Christ as you go to him each day in prayer for daily bread. Fourth thing, he says to pray. Forgive us our sin. Fourth thing, forgive us our sins. Now it's hard not to feel that corporate nature again right there, right? Forgive us our sins. So this is one of the reasons that we regularly have corporate confession of our sins. Sin, friends, is what is wrong with the world. Right? Th this virus, I think, is making that clear. You'll notice that this virus is an equal opportunity infector. You notice that? It is no respecter of ethnicity, social rank, religion, uh, ethnicity, education, um, social rank. That, that shows us that the world will never ultimately be made right by any machination of man. You can have all the money in the world that you want, but you're still going to want more. 
You can have, you can be the smartest person on planet Earth, but you'll still not be able to figure your marriage out. You can have all the fame in the world and still feel incredibly lonely. You can try and do everything that your religion tells you to do to kind of justify yourself, but you'll find that you still won't have assurance. Why? Because none of these things goes deep enough to solve the world's problems. Sin, which is rebellion against the hallowing of God's name, that's the problem. And unless that gets fixed, unless sin gets addressed, nothing else will ever ultimately get fixed. And so some of you are listening to this going, well, Nathan, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm pretty good. I don't really sin that much or whatever the case may be. But friend, I would remind you of the teaching of Christ that said that no one is good except God alone. Until we accept that, we will never find life and healing. Until we come to the realization that sin is my problem, your problem, our problem, we will never come to true and lasting hope and healing. That's the bad news. But the good news is, take a look at the passage again. The good news is, is that Jesus teaches us here that forgiveness is possible. Right? He teaches us to ask forgiveness of our sins, for our sins. For the ways that we've all daily, daily rebelled against God by trying to be like God. Again, it's amazing how we've figured out sending men to the moon in driverless cars. Yet we can't seem to figure out, every generation can't seem to figure out divorce. Sexual immorality, greed, gossip, slander, covetousness, sinful worry. These things happen in every generation. And the way out, friends, the way out of these things is by going to God in prayer and asking God to forgive us for our sins. Since our sin is ultimately a charge against God himself. Right? This is why Jesus came. Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus just said there in Luke 5, the whole reason I came was to call sinners to repentance. Repentance means to turn around. And this is what Jesus does. He came to forgive us of our sins for all those that would trust him. Jesus' sinless life led to his death to atone for sin on the cross. Right? For all that trust him. And so that uh, atonement, that sacrifice on the cross, that's why the cross is so important. It's centered to the life of the Christian because we understand sin is what's wrong with the world. Christ came to overcome it by living a sinless life, going to the cross to make it a sacrifice, to make a payment for all the people that trust him, that repent of sin and trust him. That sacrifice, the, the anger of God against our sin is taken out on Jesus, not on the one that, uh, that we deserve, on us. And then he absorbs that. And the one that believes, we get his righteousness. Jesus' righteousness, his forgiveness comes to us. He forgives us and then he gives us his righteousness, his clean record. And Jesus shows that that payment for sin was overcome in the resurrection. Jesus doesn't resurrect from the grave. There's no possibility for forgiveness. But since he has, there is possibility for that. And so this is the time, friend. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his sacrifice for your sin on the cross. Believe that he overcame it in the resurrection and believe not that you can overcome your sin, but Jesus has on the cross. And then you find forgiveness. And then having received forgiveness uh, ourselves, that leads us to the fifth thing that Jesus prays, teaches us to pray. We forgive everyone who is indebted or sinned against us. 
The idea here is exactly the same as we thought about last week. That if Christ has forgiven us, if he's justified us, his neighbor, by his mercy, we then, having received that forgiveness, therefore we go and love our neighbor as ourselves. We then go and forgive others, just as he forgave us. We forgive our neighbors as God has forgiven us. Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 6.15 that if you, do, if you don't do that, if you don't forgive others of their sins, if you don't forgive others of their sins, then neither will the Father forgive you of your sins. And the reason for that is because he's saying that like, you don't get this. You don't understand the gospel. If you're unwilling to help others, to forgive others, then you don't understand how you've been forgiven. Forgiveness is absorbing the penalty of the sin and then absolving or pushing away the debt. Absorbing the penalty, pushing away the debt. And this is a good time to remind, be reminded of another parable of Jesus, the unforgiving servant. Some of you know that story. Remember, Jesus tells a story of this guy that owes a king a bunch of money. He shows up in the king's courtroom. The king's like, time to pay up, bro. And the uh, guy says, well, I don't have any money. I can't do this. And he pleads the mercy of the king. And the king says, fine, I'll show you mercy. You're forgiven. And then later that same day, that, that dude goes out and finds some other guy that owes him a lesser amount of money. And then he begins to choke the guy because he won't forgive him or won't, yeah, because he won't give him his money. And so uh, the king catches wind of this and he brings that guy back and says, listen, I just forgave you. And now you won't forgive another guy of a, of a, of a smaller debt. And then he throws him into prison. That's Jesus' parable. And what Jesus means to teach us is the same is true for us, that if we are unwilling to forgive our neighbor of their sins, then he will throw us in an eternal prison because we don't understand the forgiveness that he's offered us in Christ. God's name is hallowed, friends, when the kingdom breaks in by our forgiving others in the same way and in the power of Jesus to forgive others, radically, sacrificially. So well, that's why Jesus is teaching us to pray this, because you can't do this on your own. Right? I mean, sure, everybody watching this probably knows somebody that sinned against you and you think about forgiving them. You're like, I can't do that. Here's the good news. You're right. But Christ in you, you can. That's why you have to pray for strength to do it. Which then leads to the last thing in the school of prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Sixth thing in this model prayer, lead us not into temptation. If sin is the virus that is underneath all the other viruses. If sin is the root of the problem, and if the, if the difference between the consummated kingdom of God and the hallowing of God's name on the earth is three things, the forgiveness of sins, our forgiving other people's sins, and our being led away from sinning even more, well, then it would make sense that Jesus would teach us to pray for those three things, which is exactly what he did. Removing our own sin, strength to forgive others, and then not be led into uh, sin anymore. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying that God could be the one that leads us into temptation. He's just requesting help for when our temptation comes our way to actually be, actually be led away from those opportunities to be tempted. And so that means, guys, that if you're praying little, that means if you're praying little, that means that if you're not praying for the forgiveness of your own sins, that, that's what that means. You're praying little, that means you're not praying for the forgiveness of your own sins. You're, pray, you're not praying for strength to forgive other people of their sins against you. And thirdly, that means that you're not praying for strength to be led away or led out of temptation. 
And if you're not praying and those three things are not happening in your life, that might explain why you're having so much trouble overcoming besetting sin. It may explain why you can't seem to get over the hump, as it were. You're not asking the Lord for the kingdom to break into your struggles. struggles, And, and you're not asking the Lord to be led away from the temptation of those daily struggles. And yet here, here's the good news, guys. The good news is, is that Jesus is inviting you to ask the Lord to keep temptation away. And the way you access that help, guys, is through prayer. And so then, as we kind of sum all of this up, prayer is the vessel that orients our worship and then it orients us to our daily needs. When we learn how to pray, it orients our worship and it orients us to our daily needs. I love how Eugene Peterson says it of prayer. He says that as plow is needed for farming and the book for learning and pots for cooking, daily prayers are needed for believing. When we pray like this, we pray for the hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom on the earth, for daily provision, for forgiveness of sins, love to others to forgive them of their sins, and that God would lead us away from temptation. And so embrace your weakness. Be made strong by your going to God for strength in prayer. But my guess is many of you, not all of you, but many of you already knew those things. Like we think about these 20, 25 minutes in this sermon. You're sort of like, yeah, I, I probably could have said most of what you just said, Nathan. And yet you still struggle to pray. That leads to the second question that we're answering. Why should I pray? Why should we pray? So guys, what I intend to do here is cast a vision for prayer, which will lead you to embrace weakness and go to God for strength in prayer. I want to cast a vision here for us to compel us, that is, to prayer. I'm hoping that by answering the why we should pray, it would then compel us to pray. Now, on the one hand, I would hope that since we explained all the things that we just said you need to be doing in prayer when Jesus taught us that model, I would hope that that would be enough to teach you to pray. You'd hope. But it often isn't, right? Which is why I think it's so cool that Jesus moves into verses 5 to 13. Because 5 to 13, that's what he's doing. He's actually compelling us to pray. He understands that just knowing what to pray or how to pray won't be enough. I could also easily say to you, well, another reason why I need to compel you to pray is because God tells you to do it. Right? I mean, look at verse 2. When you pray. You can think of Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Think of 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. Those are commands. A prayerless Christian is like a pageless book or a waterless ocean. It's simply impossible to call yourself a Christian and not pray. Martin Luther says, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. John Onwachekwa calls uh, prayer breathing for the Christian in his book. But the motivation to pray by simply telling you that you should is also not very compelling, is it? Think about this. I tell my kids, boys, go clean your room. Why? Because I told you so, right? Not the most compelling reason. It's true, but not the most compelling reason. Take a look at what comes next in the passage. Here, Jesus in 5 to 13, he gives us two compelling reasons why we should keep on praying. All of the verbs, by the way, in that passage are in the present active tense. It would be better to read it, keep on, keep on, keep on asking, keep on knocking. 
He gives us two compelling reasons why we should keep on praying, why we should persist, why we should be impudent in prayer. One reason, compelling reason to keep on praying. One, because you'll be heard. Because you'll be heard. I take that from the story of the man that goes and wakes up his neighbor. Right, The guy hears him. The man hears the plea for bread at midnight and eventually gets up. I take it also from the fact that Jesus is telling us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. God hears. That's one compelling reason to keep on praying. God hears. But then the second reason is this. He answers us. He hears and he answers. That's what Jesus is giving us as the compelling reason to keep on praying. He hears and he answers. I take that from the fact that the man gives the bread after the man's persistence. I take it also that uh, from the fact that God will answer us, that God will, when you seek, you'll find. When you knock, it'll be open. It'll be answered. Pray, beloved, not only because you need to be oriented by what Jesus said in that prayer. That's what we did before. Pray also, not just because you're told to, but all the more pray because you'll be heard. And not only will you be heard, you'll be answered. And you'll be heard and you'll be answered because, this is huge, if you're tuning out, Come back in, pray, you'll be answered, you'll be heard, you'll be answered because, verse 2, verse 12, verse 13, we pray to our Heavenly Father who gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. See, we who are in Christ, we who believe, who are repenting and believing on Christ alone for salvation, we who are in Christ, we pray because God is our Father and He hears and answers His children with the best gift, His Spirit. So by Jesus teaching it there, let me just walk you through heavenly. The reason why Jesus puts heavenly father there, heavenly there is indicating God's sovereignty, his power. And, and father there, the reason why he sticks that in there is because he wants us to know that we're in relationship to God as father. He's family. The sovereign is our father. We're his sons and daughters. And the reason why he sticks Holy Spirit in there is because he's the person that gives us the power to live in his power. And because these things are true, we have every reason to keep on praying. One of the reasons we don't pray, we've said, just to kind of review, one of the reasons we don't pray is because we're too confident in ourselves, our pride. It's how I started. One of the other reasons we don't pray is because we're, con we're not real confident that we'll be heard. It doesn't seem like we're heard. It just seems like we're talking to the air. But another reason we're not praying is even if we're convinced that we're heard, another reason we don't pray is because we don't think we'll be answered. We might be heard, but we don't think we'll be answered. But even that is not enough. We don't pray because even if we believe we'll heard, even if we believe that we'll be answered, we don't pray because we're not always convinced of God's power and God's goodness towards us, his children. And Jesus addresses all of those. Stunning. This is why we're so compelled to stay at prayer. Jesus addressed all of these things as motivations to pray. How kind of the Lord to know that we would need reasons to keep on praying. Isn't it nice to know that God knows we're going to have trouble to pray? And he addresses it. In Luke 18.1, Jesus told a parable so that we might not lose heart in prayer. So Jesus knows that prayer is hard. He knows that acknowledging our dependence, our weakness is hard, our our failures is hard. And so he not only teaches us how to pray, he gives us compelling reasons to stay at prayer. 
And there's no better reason to stay at prayer than to know that in Christ, we will be heard, we will be answered because God is our Father and He is our Heavenly Father and He loves to give good things, as it says here, the Holy Spirit to His children that persistently ask. In verse 11, Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So Jesus employs this lesser to greater argument here. So if you, look at the words. If you don't have a Bible, you need to see this. So if you, because here we get Jesus' anthropology. We get Jesus' understanding of the nature of man. And you'll notice it is not the enlightened West's understanding of man. Jesus says, so if you, being evil. (laughs) Not a very tolerant message, Jesus. So if you, being evil. Know how to give good gifts. This is so huge. Circle this, bracket this, underline this. How much more? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him? Again, it's this lesser to greater argument. So if my son Elisha comes to me and says, Dad, I'm really hungry, and I know he's hungry, and he asks for some bread, do you honestly think Nathan Knight, jacked up as I am, all of you know I'm jacked up in a thousand ways, Do you really think that if Elisha comes to me and says, Dad, I'm really hungry, I need some bread, and I'm like, dude, sorry, here's a baseball card. Eat that. Like, I'm not going to do that. I love my son. I don't want him to starve. Here's some bread I would do, right? And so if I would do that, and apart from Christ, I'm not good, I'm evil, how much more would the good heavenly Father, how much more will He give the Holy Spirit to his children that come to him in faith. Go back up to that parable we looked at earlier. Remember the persistent guy knocking on the door at midnight? The point of that is, some of you struggled with this, the point of that parable is not to be like, what you need to do is annoy God. And if you annoy him enough, he'll answer you. That's not what's happening. Remember, use the lesser to greater argument here. What he's saying is, is if those dudes are friends, and then he would eventually answer him, how much more? Would God be quick to answer those that are persistently praying to God? Jesus, friends, purchased a pathway into the Father's throne room. Prayer then is a privilege. right? Jesus purchased a pathway into the Father's throne room. We are His children and we have unparalleled access in Christ. My sons can wake up at 3 in the morning and knock on my door. They wouldn't even knock. They would come right in. And wake me up. And I would say, what? And he was, I need some water. Whatever. I'd say, go get it yourself. But nevertheless, whatever it is. And that's the kind of access we have with God. We could go right into his throne room. That was the whole point of Jesus when he died. And that, that, uh, that, that uh, veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, we're all priests who are in Christ. We're going to go right in. That's the access God purchased for us. And we go in there to that throne room. Not to ask for a Ferrari. Not to ask for fame or for fortune. Those are not the things that the Holy Spirit wants. No, what we do is we go into that throne room to ask that God's name would be hallowed. You see some other name being hallowed or whatever. You go in and God, no, your name above that. God says, I will answer that prayer. You stay at that, I'm going to answer that prayer. You go in there to that throne and you wake God up and you say, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
God's going to be glad to answer that persistent prayer. God, give me daily grace every day. Go on to God, I need food. God, I need food. God, I need food. Monday, God, I need food. Tuesday, God, I need food. He's glad to keep answering that. Strengthen me to forgive others. Forgive me of my sin. God's glad to answer that. Lead me away from temptation. God is going to supply those needs. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Not to give you a bunch of worldly love, but to give you heavenly love from your heavenly Father. That's what the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do, to lead us to love and live like the Lord. An earthly father would want the best for his children. How much more would a heavenly father want for his children the things that he bought with the blood of his own son? And so, yes, pray, beloved. You're going to be heard. You're going to be answered. Because, Christian, you are uh, a son or daughter of the heavenly father who bought you and brought you to himself, that you would be holy as he is. What better motivation do you need to pray and stay at prayer? But let me end with this. I realize that some of you are thinking something right now, this portion of the sermon, or at least about four or five minutes before this. Some of you are thinking, all right, Nathan, but what if I have persistently prayed for these kinds of good things and the Lord hasn't seemed to answer? What about that? In particular, what about when God, Nathan, keeps something away, something that he says himself is good, and it doesn't seem like he's answering that? Does it seem that he is more of a good gift than an earthly father as it relates to those requests? That might be the salvation of a loved one. That might be the healing of someone. Something like that. What about those things? When God doesn't seem to answer those things. It would seem an earthly father, if he has the power, he could overcome those things. He would want to. So why doesn't God, if he loves much more than an earthly father? Well, friend, I want you to know, I've wrestled with that question this week. A lot. Uh, In fact, if we're talking about confessing our sins, I've had to ask forgiveness from God for some anger in this department this week. I confess that. To the Lord, I confess that to you. I've sinned against God, being a little angry about this question that we're, I'm asking, trying to answer. So how do we think about that? How do we think about that? The short answer is, friend, I don't exactly know. How's that for an answer? I don't know why the Lord moves in mysterious ways like he does. But Jesus tells us to stay at it. I do think, though, we have reasons to trust Him. I do think that we have reasons to keep at prayer when He doesn't seem to be answering good requests for good gifts. I, I, could, I, I come up with probably five or six. I'm going to give you three. These are three things that I told myself when I was asking myself the same question to God. Three things, three reasons I said to myself that have me to keep praying and to stand up here and deliver this sermon to you, believing it. Three reasons. One is God doesn't hide the brokenness of this world and the absence of good prayers for good requests. He didn't hide that in the Bible. That gives me reason to trust him. In fact, if we understand our doctrine of Scripture teaches us not just that these stories are in there, Our understanding of Scripture is that God put them in there. 
It's His voice coming through those authors. So for instance, God wasn't silent. He stuck the story of Abraham's prayer for a child for 25 years that never got answered. And God even told him he was going to give a child to him. And God didn't answer that prayer month after month after month after month after month after month for 25 years. God didn't hide that. He stuck it in there. He didn't hide the how long, O Lord, in the Psalms. He didn't hide that. He put those things in there himself. I was reading a book this week. A third of the Psalms are lament. God doesn't hide it. Not only does he not hide it, he intentionally puts it in there. He didn't hide Stephen's being stoned for preaching the gospel so that people would believe. He put that front and center to us. And not only that, Jesus told us, he warned us that it was going to be hard and that things were going to be mysterious. Time and again, I think about Paul's words, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Here's a guy that's seen everything and he still can't put things together, but we're not driven to despair in part because God's put this stuff in the Bible and he's warned us and he's told us it was going to be like this. That gives me reason to trust him that he's not trying to hide something or somebody created the religion. Second reason though, why I think we have reason to keep on praying when God's not answering good prayers is that he didn't even answer a good request from his only begotten son. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he pray? A good request. Take this cup from me. Don't make me have to be forsaken. I mean, he's, he's so shaken. He's sweating drops of blood. And God didn't answer. And it wasn't because he didn't love his son. We know that. He had a very, Jesus had a very good request to his father that the father didn't answer. Third reason why I believe we have reason to trust him when we're asking for good things and he's not answering the way that we would like to. Third reason, I've already referenced this one, but it's the most important. The father gave up his most treasured possession to us when he did not have to. He sent his son to die for his enemy. As Jesus says in this passage, for evil people. And so if the father didn't withhold his only son, then I have reason to believe that if he doesn't answer my good prayer at all, or he doesn't answer it in the way or the time I would like, he's given me every reason to trust him in this trial and to keep on praying because I will be heard and I know that he will answer me because he loves me, because I know that, because he sent his son. I love you, Restoration Church. I love you. More than you probably know. And I'm willing to do so much for you. So much. But I'm not willing to give you my son. I'm not. I don't love you that much. I love my son too much. If it, if it meant me having to sacrifice my son for you, I'm not going to do that. Yet that's what God did. That's exactly what God did. Romans 8.32. If you don't have this one memorized, especially in this time, get it in your heart deep for times of suffering and perplexion. God did not spare His only son 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not then with him graciously give us all things? See the argument that Paul is making in Romans 8? If God is willing to give us his only son, he's not going to spare his only son. How can we not trust him for everything? We have reason to stay at prayer. Especially when he doesn't, God doesn't seem to be answering, when he's silent about good things that we're asking for. He's given us so many things that encourage us to stay at it and to trust him through it. It's been hard for me this week. But I'm standing in this pulpit telling you that you can trust him. And so may we be sobered up. May we be sobered up to die to all of our attempts to run our own lives. I'm concerned for us in this, guys. I'll be honest. That as we're spread out, not able to gather, we're going to fall into habits that will just lead more into our own strength, leading us away from God. May we be sobered up to die to our own attempts to run our own lives, to live in our own strength, as is evidenced by the frailties of our prayer life. And instead, in these strange days that we're living, may we learn the reality that we're weak and that we have to throw ourselves on the strength of Christ every day in prayer. We've got to learn to have habits of healthy, holy, daily prayer lives in order to make it through this wilderness and get to the Jordan. Ray Ortland says that if such a good path, good uh, message, if we pastors and our churches get through this, the virus, if we pastors and our churches get through this only to return to normal with a sigh of relief, without repentance, without prayer, without courage, we will have wasted our historic moment. And then he asked, what more will the Lord have to do to shake us awake? And so, in seeing our weakness, may we cast all of our cares upon the Lord so that we would be strong in Him as we go to Him daily in prayer. May we learn to pray because we learn that it's our life. And may uh, we have nothing, we have to learn that we have nothing apart from Him, no strength to live apart from Him. And say, may we, here's my prayer, May we, Restoration Church, come out of this as a mighty, missionary, loving force because we learned over the course of this exile, we've learned to pray. On the other side of this, may we be a church that said, man, that church, they pray, man. They trust God and they pray. They pray together. They pray individually. They pray in small groups. They pray over the phone. They're praying because they believe that we've got to stay at this. We've got to persist in prayer that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come and we would know daily provision for bread and forgiveness of sins and strength to forgive others and not being led into more sin ourselves. That's our prayer. May we then pray, learn to pray like this. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. So let's do that now. Let's pray. God, hallow your name. In this world, in our nation, in our city, in our church. Bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us, God, of the sins that we have committed against you. We plead the blood of Christ in him alone to forgive us. Not our own good works, Jesus alone. And then from that, God, may we have the strength to forgive others. And God, keep us from sinning more. Develop within us 
habits, to go away from entertainment and boredom to engaging you regularly, daily in prayer. We pray you'd lead us toward that end for your glory and our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you.